This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a place in the heart of Denver where injection drug users pick up clean needles and drop off dirty ones. It's blocks away from the state capitol where lawmakers will continue to wrestle with Colorado's drug epidemic. At this center, people also learn how to avoid overdosing and keep their veins healthy. But the center wants to do more. CPR's Andrea Dukakis visited and joins me in the studio now. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. This place is called the Harm Reduction Action Center. And what is it like? It's pretty inconspicuous. To get inside, you have to first go through a rundown iron gate. The center is basically just a large carpeted room with tables and chairs. There are lots of red bins full of used needles and boxes and boxes of new needles. It's open from 9 to noon weekdays. And to protect the privacy of clients, I had to visit in the afternoon. But while I was there, I met folks who challenged pretty common assumptions about people who inject illegal drugs. Stevie Pinkerton's a volunteer at the center who has a background in nursing. I knew he'd used meth in the past and asked how he got off it. I am not off drugs. I do still currently uh, use methamphetamine and inject that drug as well. But I still want to help people. I'm kind of like a caretaker by nature. So I like taking care of things and being helpful and nurturing and all that, you know, all that gushy crap. Half the staff, including the volunteers, are former or current drug users. Pinkerton's 37 and homeless, like many of the clients. He says he usually injects at night and thinks his own drug use makes him a better volunteer. I'm out here on the streets with all the other clients So I see them, you know, um, in the morning before I come here, I see them at night when, you know, I go to sleep on the street with my blow-up mat and my sleeping bag. I'm just no different than any of them. So many are homeless. What else can you say about the people who come to this center? Most of them inject meth or heroin or both. They're typically between the ages of 18 and 44. Other than that, Kat Humphreys, who's the program director, says she does not like to categorize them. We see every single type of person you can imagine, Um, from somebody in a business suit to somebody who isn't that, you know. And um, we all have these shirts that say, I love drug users. And that's true. I love all the people that come in here that we interact with. They are funny. Um, They make me laugh every single day. And sometimes people have bad days. But mostly they are people that I really consider, like, looking forward to seeing every day. Now, there's been a lot of attention lately on overdose deaths from opioids, but there are also an increasing number of meth users in Colorado, including many who inject. Kat Humphrey says methamphetamine can be fatal, too. And she says they're seeing more people, many who are homeless, using both heroin and meth. We have a lot of heroin users who use meth to stay up so that they aren't robbed or assaulted at night on the street. We have meth users who use heroin to come down and go to sleep. Like, that is harm reduction and in very serious ways, but um, it's not always looked at that way. And I think that it's really important to understand the motivations for why people are using those drugs, but I think it comes from all different places. Some insight into why people use. As we said, this is called a harm reduction center, Andrea. What does that mean? 
It's also called a needle exchange. So as we said, they take in dirty needles and hand out clean ones. And that's to avoid the spread of HIV and hepatitis. They also teach people about vein care so they don't get infections. There's naloxone on site, which can reverse an opioid overdose. Clients can come in and take a sponge bath in the bathroom sink. They have coffee, counseling. And really, my sense is many come for the fellowship. But Lisa Ravel, who heads up the place, says mostly clients just want to say, stay as healthy as possible. One thing that people think about people who inject drugs is that they don't care about their health. We actually talk about it every day in every way. No one's mandated to be here, which is really great. We appreciate that. <laughs> so they're being proactive about their health. Now, needle exchanges for street drug users weren't legal in Colorado until 2010. The center is the largest in the state. It takes in about 3,000 used syringes a day, and it's funded with public and private money. Research shows the approach saves lives, but participants still overdose and die. Um, in a two-week period this year, the center lost six people, which is a lot for them. And I saw a wall inside covered with dozens of photographs of clients who had died. Do the workers encourage people to stop using drugs? They'll tell you right away that's not their mission. Their goal, says Lisa Rayville, is to keep people out of the hospital and alive. They know the world wants them to be abstinent, so we don't talk about treatment or any other services unless they bring it up with us first. We're creating a relationship with a very marginalized population that when they want to do something different, we're the first people they come to. Ravel says not everyone is what she'd call a problematic drug user. She thinks lots of users can still lead productive lives, even work while doing these drugs. That thinking really surprised me. Um, I think it's also important to note that even if they encouraged everyone to get into treatment, there aren't enough available options in the state. So state lawmakers have been talking a lot lately about an approach that some say would save more lives. Tell us what's on the table. The city council and the state legislature are considering making Denver one of the first cities to open what they call a supervised use site. These kinds of places are pretty common in other countries. They often look more like health clinics with booths where people can inject with clean needles. Lisa Rayville's leading the charge on that. Right now, you know, we can give them everything that they need to prevent and eliminate the transmission of HIV and hepatitis C. And then essentially we send them out to go to an alley six blocks away to inject, right? Um, so we want to take injecting out of the public sphere and put it into a controlled environment. People can dispose of their needle right away. It decreases skin tissue infections that can be very costly in the emergency department. We're losing too many people in our community and no more. Ravel says at dozens of facilities all over the world, no one has died of an overdose because there's always a trained professional there. And she says from a public health perspective, you get needles and users out of parks and libraries. And as for a location for the site, she hopes it could be in the same place the center is now. Again, just uh, a stone's throw away from the Capitol. How much support does this idea have? Well, Denver City Council just held a community forum to reassure residents who are worried about safety. And the reaction was largely favorable. A bill to allow this will go before the state legislature in the upcoming session. So far, there's bipartisan support. Democratic State Representative Brittany Pedersen of Lakewood, whose mother is a recovering heroin addict, backs the idea. She says she gets why some people might see it as condoning drug use. I understand where the perception around some of this comes from. 
This is not promoting this. This is making sure that we're keeping people alive today and increasing the likelihood of them actually moving towards recovery. Pedersen's also backing several bills focused on getting a handle on drug use in Colorado. As for Stevie Pinkerton, who, again, is a volunteer at the center and uses meth, he's not sure what he's moving toward. Um, My drug use in the future, in all honesty, I have no clue. I'm 37 years old. I've been using drugs since 19, almost 20. I, for the first time in my life, am not trying to figure out when I will stop using drugs. And I can say this. The Harm Reduction Action Center taught me how to not shame myself, how to not hate myself. And it taught me for the first time how to begin to love myself and accept myself and that I can still be a very active member of society and I can contribute and I can do that while using drugs. Not a perspective you hear very often. Indeed. Thanks so much, Andrea. You're welcome. The CPR's Andrea Dukakis, who visited a center in Denver where injection drug users can exchange needles and where they learn to keep themselves alive. City and state officials may allow it to become a supervised injection site. We air your feedback in loud and clear. And let's start with your reactions to Breaking Bread, an ongoing series in which Coloradans try to find common ground despite their political differences. We serve them soup and bread and record the conversation. Most recently, two members of the group, a Trump supporter who's Christian and a Green Party voter who's Muslim, went to each other's places of worship. We've heard from a lot of you about that. Stephen Westbrook of Castle Rock writes, It brought tears to my eyes, and I was left speechless. The woman's honestly expressed fears were so touching. Thank you so, so much for this story. Carolyn Hartle of Denver emailed, I want to thank Ryan Warner for his broadcast with the Imam and the Baptist woman tonight. These kinds of programs help people understand each other, plain and simple. I found this frank discussion so refreshing in this tired media world we're privy to. She added, bravo to the participants. And this from Barbara Infanger of Fruta. As I was listening to your Breaking Bread story, it occurred to me that it would be awesome if you folks would head over to the other side of the mountain to include some of us here on the Western Slope in some of your segments. Too often we here on the Western Slope are left out of these kinds of stories. Well, Barbara, Breaking Bread will continue, and one of our goals is to find ways more people can participate. Another listener enjoyed a similar approach we took in our November interview with the governor. We invited two citizens to participate in the conversation, which focused on oil and gas drilling. Listener Josh Boisevain tweeted, I love the community roundtables you've done. First breaking bread, now the energy one. So nice to hear Coloradans coming together and engaging in genuine dialogue. I could listen to these all day. Please do more. Josh, we will. I see this show as a place where Coloradans can talk through seemingly intractable issues. We got a complaint, though, about a guest we chose in that governor's segment, homeowner Megan Townsend. She lives in unincorporated Adams County, and if the state gives final approval, she'll have a well about a thousand feet from her home. On Facebook, Lindsay Amber writes, I'm so disappointed in the person you had to portray homeowners' concerns against oil and gas. Get someone that lives next door to an existing well site, not a proposed one. She is constantly placating oil and gas and doesn't have firsthand experience. 
Well, Lindsay, we chose Megan Townsend because the debate over oil and gas development in Adams County and nearby Broomfield has reached a fever pitch, including Broomfield's Question 301, approved by voters, which increases local control of drilling. A sign that was placed outside a Denver coffee shop continues to drive debate around the G-word, gentrification. Ink Coffee boasted it was, quote, happily gentrifying the neighborhood since 2014. The shop is in Five Points, which is historically black. The sign sparked days of protests and resulted in an apology from the owner of the business and the designer of the ad. Last week, I spoke with City Council President Albus Brooks, who represents that part of town. Julie Carr of Denver heard that interview, which touched on other issues related to gentrification, and she left a message. I'm really especially glad that you asked him about the urban camping ban, which he deflected the question, which only showed that he has nothing to say. Um, So you did a great job interviewing him without getting him upset or shut down, but revealing to your listeners that he is really a failed politician. Carol Anderson of Denver wrote that she was upset Brooks dismissed the I-70 redesign as a factor in pushing people out of the city. Quote, these things are central to the displacement that the protesters are talking about. Councilman Brooks should acknowledge that. Listener Brad Evans emailed me, disappointed Brooks was on alone. Quote, it's frustrating that you chose to cover this with a single and biased voice, missing the opportunity to provide diverse opinions to your mostly white audience. You've probably only fanned the flames of dissent by using Brooks as the sole authority on this. Brad, we felt it was important to hear from the elected official in that neighborhood, someone who in addition holds power citywide. I framed nearly every question to bring the protesters' concerns to the seat of power. Furthermore, our coverage of gentrification long precedes this story and will continue beyond it with many other perspectives. And we always welcome your ideas, so find ways to get in touch at CPR.org. Click Connect. And finally, does the name Velvet Elvis ring a bell? He's an impersonator of the king. His real name is Johnny Barber, and he has a long-standing obsession with Colfax Avenue, as he told us earlier this year. I like to call it the longest, wickedest, as in awesome street in America. He'd come on to share a bit of Colfax history with us. Barber and his wife run ColfaxAvenue.com, and they've wanted to open a Colfax museum. Well, now it's a reality, and it is housed in Edmore Florist on, you guessed it, Colfax. When I was checking out at the supermarket this weekend, guess whose faces were on the cover of every tabloid? Yes, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, ahead of their royal wedding in May. Our next guest had a close-up view when Harry's brother William got married seven years ago. He was right there on the altar. Back then, Ian Thompson worked at Westminster Abbey. He's now on the staff at St. John's Episcopal Cathedral in Denver. And Ian, welcome. Hello. Uh, I understand that your view of William's wedding was better than the Queen's. Where were you in the Abbey? What could you see? Yeah, I was actually up at the uh, the High Altar at the Abbey. So because I was looking after the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London during the wedding, um, I was able to get a seat up at the High Altar. So we actually got to see actually the faces of Prince William and Kate. So we actually got to see them do their wedding vows 
should we say, you know, face to face. And the Queen and all the rem- members of the royal family, they were sitting on the floor. So all they could see was the back of their heads. So it was great. I actually got one up on the Queen. Uh, your title at the Abbey was Verger, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, tell us what that meant, especially on that particular day. You say you were helping the Archbishop. Sure. So... Um, in England, in any cathedral, there's always a team of vergers, and there's vergers in the Episcopal Church as well. So basically, uh, the vergers are part of a liturgical team who help with the preparation for all the services. But the most important role for a verger um, is actually we lead the procession. So we're responsible for making sure that people get to where they're supposed to be at the right time. They get to the right seats and everything and to lead them out at the end. It's a fancy term in a way for usher. Basically, Basically, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the most important thing for us is is the actual procession to make sure that whoever we're looking after, we're responsible for. This really is like putting on a show. It is. I mean, it is. I mean, like we're the stage manage, managers and everything. And um, yeah, so it is like putting on a show. Was this a big deal for you? or it, Or do other people make more of this than you do? People have actually asked me many, many times, you know, were you nervous or were you anxious about being on there the raw day? And I've tried to tell people I'm not being big headed, but for me and for the Abbey, it was just like a normal day for us. Um, I've taken part in many big services, royal and national services. You know, I've been on live on television before. Um, So the royal wedding, even though it was amazing for me, it was just like a regular day. But I have to assume that there were more eyeballs on you for that than those previous events, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a global audience watches these things. Yes. And when we were actually doing the service and where I was sitting, um, you kind of had to kind of blank that out Uh in your mind. You had to just forget how many people were watching you, even though you were very well aware the cameras were on you. So... I was being very aware not to scratch my head or pick my nose or anything like that. Um, But it was one of those things, you know, it was a job that you had to do. People were, you know, expecting you to be responsible. People, you know, were, shall we say, you know, I'm trying to think of the right words. Well, just lots of expectations on good behavior and and making sure that every hair is in place. Yeah, absolutely. And and so because you led them in, part of that procession. Yeah. You ended up watching from the altar. Yeah. And what was it like the moment that uh, Prince William and Kate Middleton, now the Duchess of Cambridge, took their vows? What stands out? I think one of the amazing things that stood out is we knew, first of all, you know, there was a lot of people watching us. We knew before, of course, that most of the big parks in London were having big screens so people could watch it in the parks. Right. And 20 million people watching in the U.S. I, I mean, think. it was incredible. But the main thing for us is that... Um, when they were doing the vows and William said like the first note, I will, I do, where there was a pause and you could actually then hear the noise of the crowd from outside screaming and cheering. (laughs) So everybody in the Abbey, we were just kind of smiling. The members of the royal family were smiling as well. It was just a great occasion because you realize that even though you had like 1,900 people in the Abbey, it was at that point that it hit you. This is a national and global affair. This is a national thing. The fact that, you know, what you're doing here, even though people can't always see it, you knew what was happening outside. It was was just incredible. That was one of the biggest things that stood out. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Ian Thompson, who today is at St. John's Episcopal Cathedral in Denver, but uh, who in 2011 
uh, was on the altar for the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton at Westminster Abbey. And he's giving uh, something of a preview of what we might expect from the next royal wedding. How did you find out that uh, the Abbey was where the ceremony would take place? Because there, there are lots of options, right, for a royal wedding? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I mean, when, like usually, a royal wedding is announced... Um, there's kind of like the two big ones they think, first of all, perhaps like Westminster Abbey and perhaps St. George's Chapel, Windsor. The main thing you have to realize in England, there are certain churches which are known as a raw peculiar. I mean, trust us British to have the word peculiar in, you know, a title. Um, but basically, raw peculiars are churches that come under the jurisdiction of only one person, the sovereign. So because it is like a royal place of worship, uh, those are kind of what you people would expect that's going to happen. And they're peculiar because they're different. They're set apart. Exactly. Okay. Even though royal peculiars, should we say, are still part of the Church of England, um, the difference is, is that a royal peculiar and the Archbishop of Canterbury or any bishop doesn't have any jurisdiction over them. It is the sovereign's church. And once you found out that it would be the abbey, I imagine work began immediately. For us at the Abbey, no. No, um, okay. no it's so no. commonplace. No, it, it's, I mean, the amazing thing was is that, again, people say, you know, when you found out you had yeah. the royal wedding, um, you know, was that all you could think of? And, of course, it wasn't because, you know, the royal wedding was going to take place on Friday the 29th of April. And that year in 2011, Easter fell on April the 24th. So we have a royal wedding the week after Easter. So we couldn't really think much about it because we had the whole of Holy Week. We had Easter. And the other big thing that came up is that uh, in England, there is the Royal Monday service where the sovereign gives out special coins to people in the community. Westminster Abbey gets it every 10 years. And would you believe it that the 10th year that the Abbey gets it was the year of the royal wedding? The royal wedding. So mm. not only did we have Easter, we had the royal Monday service with members of the royal family. And here's the best bit. Not only was it the 10th year for the royal Monday service at the Abbey, because it happened on the 21st of April, that's the actual official birthday of the Queen. And because she was 85 <laughs> that year, they also decided, let's broadcast it live. So we got Holy Week, another broadcast, plus the royal wedding. The royal wedding, pshaw. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm just going back into uh, some royal wedding history here. Sure. Where things have not gone exactly as planned. Uh, I remember, for instance, that Princess Diana, when she said her vows, mixed up Prince's, Prince Charles's name and said uh-huh. Prince Charles Philip Arthur George. She called him Philip Charles Arthur George and switched the names around. Did anything go uh, just a little bit wrong for uh, the royal wedding that you witnessed? Sure. Again, this is a question that people do do ask me. And it's I and I tell them the absolute, nothing from our side went wrong. Because of the number of her- rehearsals we did the day before. Are the royals at the rehearsals? No, there's usually like stands in. So, okay. of course, at the end, obviously, they would go back and brief everybody. And, you know, I can't speak for Will and Kate, but obviously they had a rehearsal at some point on their own. But for us, because of the number of rehearsals we did the day before... Everybody was fine. Everybody was great. Everybody knew what was going on. And they're used to pomp and circumstance and standing in a certain place and then moving to another. How did your family feel about 
you being a part of a of a wedding, a royal wedding, your parents, your girlfriend, maybe? Uh, at that point, it was my fiance and my parents were, I mean, everybody in my family was just glued to the screen. Um, I mean, working at the Abbey, my family knew that, you know, I've done, a, I used to help with a lot of big royal services. So like seeing members of the royal family at the Abbey was nothing new. But this was like a once in a lifetime opportunity, you know, a royal wedding like this only comes once in a lifetime. And you were a fiancé at the time? Yeah. And um, then how quickly did the, the your own wedding come, your own uh, royal wedding? We actually got married in May 2012. Uh, we actually got engaged in the Abbey uh, a couple of weeks before the royal wedding. Um, I actually took her into the Abbey all on, you know, when there was nobody there. Um, we went up to the high altar. I uh, went down on one knee, asked her to marry me. So that we actually got mar- um, engaged upon like the area where Will and Kate got married. So we got there first. You got there first. We, we got there first. Trying to upstage them, I see. Absolutely. Ian, thanks so much for talking to us. You're very welcome. Did you, By the way, did you get to eat their wedding cake? No. So at, okay. the, so at the very uh, end, uh, we actually, everybody who took part got a, a lovely little tin box with a piece of the wedding cake. People say to me, did I eat it? No, that's my pension. That's, so, uh, <laughs> that's my pension. No, <laughs> to no. To be sold on eBay. Ian Thompson <laughs> participated in the wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton at Westminster Abbey in 2011. He's now a sacristan. It's a job similar to the one he held in England at St. John's Episcopal Cathedral in Denver. This is Colorado Matters. This week marks the 76th anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which thrust the U.S. into World War II. More than 2,400 Americans were killed, nearly half of them crew members of the USS Arizona. Donald Stratton of Colorado Springs was on the ship that day. Everybody was there. People were laying on the deck. People were groaning and hollering and screaming Everybody was trying to get a shot of morphine, and my T-shirt caught on fire, and of course they cut all of our clothes off. And my back was burnt pretty bad. All my hair was gone, burnt off. Part of my ear was gone. Had a lot of scars. Stratton, now in his 90s, is one of only a handful of survivors still alive. He has a book called All the Gallant Men, and my colleague Nathan Heffel sat down with his co-author, Ken Geyer, last year. Can you take us back to 1941 and paint a picture of this 19-year-old seaman first class? Sure. Uh, Don was uh, part of that area of the southern plains. Um, you didn't really travel to see the world. You didn't really have dreams and aspirations of wanting to go to New York or Hollywood to make it big or anything like that. You just pretty much stayed on the land. You didn't change churches. You didn't change uh, friendships. You pretty much had friends that you lived with, worked with, played with uh, all of your life. Don was uh, one of 200 students in his high school. He was voted the best athlete in the school. He played four sports, specialized mostly in football, loved, loved football quite a bit. Don, obviously his world then was Nebraska. So what was it like for this small town boy to see this great battleship, the USS Arizona, for the first time when he went to Hawaii? 
It absolutely took his breath away. The Arizona was the flagship battleship of uh, the Pacific Fleet, and it was such a mammoth thing, two football fields long and about a third of a football field wide, and huge guns and gun turrets. He, he was fond of saying, he said, it was quite a sight, quite a sight. And he's assigned routine jobs and, and also to a battle station. He says they practice a couple times a week, but the U.S. wasn't at war at the time. But he wakes up on the morning of December 7th, 1941, walks out on deck. What does he see? He says he's a, he had actually just finished breakfast and he had uh, several oranges in his naval cap that he was taking to a friend who had jaundice in sickbay. And just as soon as he got up on deck, he saw the sailors all pointing to Ford Island and he heard the drone of planes and the bombs dropping, beginning to drop. And then he saw one of the planes veer away and saw the characteristic uh, meatballs. Meatballs. Meatballs, what they call those round red decals on the wings of the Japanese Zero. And uh, he just went immediately to his battle station, ran up about uh, five flights of metal stairs to get there. It was was mainly calibrating the guns, uh, the anti-aircraft guns that they had on board and trying to set the altitude right so that when the uh, anti-aircraft shell blew up, it would blow up at a certain altitude where the planes were flying in the hope that it would, the shrapnel from those bullets would hit the cockpit or fuel line or some other vital part of the enemy planes. And Don says the Japanese, while they were attacking his ship, they flew so low that he could see the pilots smirking and waving. It gives the impression in the book that this was very personal to him, that that sight. It was very personal, and and you have to take into consideration that he lost so many friends uh, in an instant. And to see your enemy, one, not declare war, but just kind of hitting you blindside. It's like you're just walking and somebody comes up from behind you and this slams into your head and knocks you to the ground. It's that that type of thing. And it's one thing for them to do that. It's another thing for them to gloat over it and just as they were dropping their bombs and strafing the ships, uh, had this just wicked grin on their face and waving to them and making all kinds of gestures to them. And the Arizona was hit by several bombs, uh, but the fourth one was cataclysmic. An armor-piercing bomb dropped from 10,000 feet drills right into the ammunition storage, and the battleship explodes. What happened to Don at that point? Well, if if you had seen the movie uh, Pearl Harbor, the one that Ben Affleck played in, you'll see the Japanese pilot dropping the armor-piercing bomb goes through four decks and has a delayed fuse and then explodes. It went through the starboard side of the number two turret, exploding at the, at the same time when it exploded. It ignited a million pounds of gunpowder, uh, 180,000 gallons of aviation fuel for the planes that they had on board, the spotting planes. But they also had just filled up the ship in anticipation for a trip to the West Coast. And so they had a a million and a half gallons of fuel on on top of that. And when the bomb exploded, all of that exploded too. And you had this huge, huge fireball and these black plumes of smoke just billowing up and eating up the blue sky. And Don is at his station at, at the time, and he's alive, but of course he's in the middle of this inferno. Here's exactly how he describes it. We were no escape there from down the hatches or down the ladders and everything because everything was all so hot you couldn't hardly do anything. And one 
gentleman jumped out and I tried to close the hatch and got burned pretty bad, but just pulled the skin off my arms and threw it down because it was in the way. He pulled the burned skin off his arms because it was getting in the way. Don's facing certain death, but then someone comes to the rescue. What happens? What happened was there was a, a momentary parting of the, this huge plume of black smoke. And he saw a man in another ship that was moored right next to them in a ship called the Vestal. And the Vestal was a repair ship, and they had docked alongside of the Arizona. And he saw... Uh, a sailor cutting the lines that held the two ships together because the vessel was fearful that the fire from the Arizona would destroy them. And so he he waves, gets this man's attention, and has him throw a heaving line. And so he throws the heaving line over, uh, missed it once, missed it twice. A third time, Don catches it, ties it off. And now they have to see if they can go across, uh, it's about 70 feet, across, and it's about 45 feet down. Now, what down looked like was now the fuel oil was in the water and had ignited. So you have flames not only under the sky platform where they were cooking the metal that they were standing on, but they had flames in between the two ships. They were going to try to just forehand one hand over the other to get from the Arizona to the Vestal. And he's burned over two-thirds of his body, isn't that correct? He is. He's burned over two-thirds of his body, but also all the flesh in their hands was burned off and in their palms. So as they're forehanding themselves across this rope, it it was just bare tissue, you know, excruciatingly painful. But they got all six of them across. It was just a a miracle that, that they did. Now, if Don's story ended there, it would be remarkable. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't end there. After a year, he re-enlists in the Navy. He serves on a destroyer in the Pacific. He fights in some of the bloodiest battles of the Pacific, including the last one, Okinawa. Uh, Here's why he says he went back. When I was discharged the first time, I went home. Nobody was around. All the people I graduated with that I ran around with, they were all in the service. And that probably had a lot to do with be going back. Outside, maybe a little revenge. He mentions revenge. Uh, This is not a book about forgiveness. How would you describe Don's feelings on revenge and and forgiveness following the war? Well, he's still, and this is true of a lot of people who experienced the worst parts of the war. Uh, They saw so much and there was such brutality. And the Japanese were so much more brutal than the Germans were, uh, both at the concentration camps, Bataan Death March, uh, the Rape of Nanking. Uh, you hear all these atrocities that came out. And we're talking about just cold-blooded, not just murder, but torture and gleefully torturing these people. You have to understand these guys, these guys were so innocent in terms of the ways of the world and they were so trusting, uh, you know, they were going on shore leave that weekend to buy a Christmas present for their kid brother or sister. Hmm. They sent their money home. They wrote to the mothers. <clears throat> and to see them so savagely cut down in the prime of life and all the gifts that they had to offer the world... Uh, rescinded in that moment. Uh, he was never able to recover from that. You know, there's a part of him, he, he lives, he still has his scars on the outside that you can see and some limitations physically. 
but you can't see the scars on the inside and the wounds on the inside. And the trauma, the memories uh, have never gone away. And that's part of the price that he pays as a survivor to live with those memories. And it's just really hard to forgive in a situation like that. Was it difficult for you to work with Don to tell his story? You know, I tell you what the difficult part was of Nathan. The way the story came to me, uh, it was not a story I sought out. And I had an immediate sense of the sacredness of it. And I was just there trying the best I could to listen well and to ask the right questions. And then about in the middle of it, I had some degenerative disc in my neck that transferred to my hands. And I would wake up and my hands would be all curled in together. And they were in a lot of pain and, and stiff. Um, and I would just cry and say, um, <clears throat> you know, God, I, I will recover from this. I will be able to write again and write several books. But this is Don's only book. And just help me to listen well, to be a good steward of the story, and help me to get it done. And the book was finished. It was finished, yes. Yes. Ken, you helped write the first ever memoir of a USS Arizona survivor 75 years later. Why do you think none of these men have told their story before? Uh, I don't know why somebody would have would not have written uh, other than that's a pretty bleak assignment to go back to that those nightmarish images and feelings. But I'm so glad. I mean, his biggest fear at this point in his life, as we were we're talking, we're starting the book, he said, I'm just afraid the story's going to be lost, that nobody's going to remember Pearl Harbor or the lessons of Pearl Harbor. And and so I'm just so glad we were able to do that. There's only five men still living, a range from 94 to 96. In two or three years, they'll probably all be dead, all be gone. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thank you. Ken Geyer is co-author of All the Gallant Men, the story of Don Stratton, who was aboard the USS Arizona when it was attacked at Pearl Harbor. Stratton lives in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As you've probably heard, there's a big Colorado case now before the U.S. Supreme Court. But the lawyers for a Christian baker who doesn't want to make same-sex wedding cakes don't come from Colorado. They're with a conservative legal group based in Arizona, one that has notched some big wins lately. CPR's Allison Sherry introduces us to the Alliance Defending Freedom. Lakewood baker Jack Phillips isn't the only business owner the Alliance is defending right now. They're also representing a t-shirt maker who doesn't want to make gay pride shirts and a florist who doesn't want to create arrangements for a gay wedding. The common factor, according to Alliance lawyer David Cortman, isn't opposition to gay people. It's concern about promoting pro-gay messages, contrary to their religious beliefs. All of them serve every customer, every client, but they won't support every particular message. As Alliance lawyers will argue to the Supreme Court today, their case is not about discrimination. It's about free speech. If you're in any type of artistic expression or creative arts and you're doing any type of speech, whether you're a graphic designer, a website designer, a publicist, an author, t-shirt maker, what have you, a cake artist, you should not be compelled to speak a message that you disagree with or violate your conscience. No matter what your position is on any topic, you have the right to say, 
no, I don't want to be compelled to speak that message. Using the First Amendment to defend freedom of religion and expression has been enormously effective for the Alliance Defending Freedom. They've had five Supreme Court wins in the last three years, including the Hobby Lobby case that limited the Obamacare birth control mandate. Their fundraising grew to $50 million last year, and they work with a nationwide network of 3,000 lawyers. Scott Levin, the regional director at the Anti-Defamation League, has opposed them on a number of Colorado cases, including today's wedding cake case. He says the alliance has won his begrudging respect. Over the past decade or so, they've been able to really change the conversation. The whole concept of religious freedom, it seems to me, has been turned on its head. It used to be that religious freedom or religious liberty were used as a shield by minority religions. But today it's become a sword. They've been using it to try to influence and to actually require everyone to believe the way they believe. The Alliance Defending Freedom is one of several conservative legal groups that started in the 1990s. Up until then, the legal advocacy landscape was dominated by more left-leaning legal powerhouses, like the American Civil Liberties Union. They're balancing the playing field for a lot of us in the legal realm. Jeff Hunt directs the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University. He says groups like Alliance and the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty have given conservatives legal firepower that they didn't have before. To be able to have a place where conservative attorneys are trained up and equipped to be able to fight on equal footing uh, in the judiciary has been important. And this will be, I think, a paradigm shift. I think as people go back and look at the history of the judiciary in America. But the alliance has also drawn sharp criticism. The Southern Poverty Law Center dubbed it a hate group because, in part, it has funded anti-gay movements abroad. University of Colorado constitutional scholar Scott Moss says the group sells itself as a, quote, freedom legal advocacy group, but they're really advancing an extreme anti-gay agenda. Their position isn't really freedom. It's forcing on others through law and the state their own religious beliefs about homosexuality and the view that you shouldn't be entitled to shop at the stores of someone who disagrees with you if you don't believe what they believe. Daniel Ramos, the executive director of One Colorado, a gay rights group, has faced off against Alliance Defending Freedom for years at the state legislature, including on a bill to ban so-called gay conversion therapy. So far, that bill hasn't passed. The Alliance Defending Freedom has been a a vocal proponent um, saying that people should be able to use their religion to pick and choose which laws to follow um, and also to pick and choose which customers they serve. An Alliance spokeswoman dismisses the anti-gay label. And she points out they've represented some non-Christians, including Jewish groups and some secular college groups. They also wrote a support letter for a Muslim prisoner in another case. And Alliance lawyer David Cortman says, most importantly, the high court has often agreed with them. So I understand there's always detractors, but I think our record speaks for itself. And, and again, I think the issues that we take benefit people regardless of what side of the aisle you're on or what side of a particular issue you're on. Alliance attorneys are hoping to rack up another big win at the Supreme Court today as they represent Lakewood Baker Jack Phillips. For CPR News, I'm Allison Sherry. And finally today, rum. It's a tropical island spirit, right? Well, a distillery in Colorado's mountains is proving that wrong. Montagna Rum Distillers in Crested Butte has made waves in the liquor world. The company was honored this year with a Colorado Export Award. President Karen Hoskin co-founded it with her husband, and she and I spoke on the phone in April. Karen, welcome to the program. 
Thank you. I have to ask, why rum? Why not distill something uh, more associated with the mountains like whiskey or, I don't know, gin? You know, it's interesting because rum actually has a long history in the mountains, both in Central and South America, as well as in the mountains of Colorado. The miners brought rum from the coasts, from Boston and from San Francisco when they came up to mine long before there was whiskey in these hills. And so rum actually goes further back in Colorado than whiskey does. And was it always sort of brought here as a finished product or is there there's a history of distilling it in the mountains? In Central America, in Guatemala, there's a huge history of distilling up in the mountains. They discovered that if you take rum up to 7,000 feet in the Guatemalan mountains and age it, it actually ages faster and better than it does at sea level. And that was really the aha moment for me was... Uh, wow, they're making rum in the mountains because altitude is hugely beneficial to the process. And so I wanted to try it out in Crested Butte at 9,000 feet, and it's proven to be true that there's quite a bit of benefit to being at high altitude. Yeah, give me an example of what those benefits are. So our temperatures fluctuate from day to night, 20 to 30 degrees almost every single day around around the year. And so when we put the rum into the barrel, instead of only about, you know, three to four gallons making it into the wood and the rest staying at the center of the barrel, the rum is moving around and more liquid is getting exposed to the wood, which is really the magic of aging. Mm. And so the more rum we can bring into contact with American white oak or French oak, the more smooth it becomes and the more flavorful. Um, You know, I often think of rum as something I drink when I want a cocktail that's really sweet. Uh, Are all rums sweet? You know, most of the mass market rums are sweet, um, but the really high quality, well-made rums tend to not be very sweet. And those haven't been widely available in the U.S. until really the last five or six years. Uh, So people associate rum with sweet cocktails because When you start with a sweet rum and you're a bartender, you're fighting with the sweetness of the spirit. Um, But some of these higher-end rums and the rums we make, for sure, are more dry and they have a little more of a traditional bitterness almost. And so bartenders are finding that they can work with that flavor profile and create almost anything in the flavor pantheon um, from, from dry to cucumber to basil to grapefruit, all kinds of flavors that work with a high-quality rum that isn't so sweetness-forward. Are there a a lot of surprised faces when people find out this is a a Colorado-made rum? Interestingly, I think because we've been around for nine-plus years at this point, we are finding less and less surprise about that. That used to be just the whole dialogue in the early days. Um, back in 2008, when we started, people would say, this is crazy. What are you thinking? Rum in the mountains. Um, but now it's almost like we've become well-known enough and we've had the conversation enough times now that people are starting to say, well, of course, there's this rum from the mountains where the water is exceptional. You recently gave a keynote address at the annual conference of the American Distilling Institute, and you talked about a range of topics, sustainability among them, and diversity. And it makes me wonder if this is um, a business that's dominated by men, or if there are many women in distilling. So when I stood up to make that speech in front of about 1,500 people, I turned around and I looked out at the group, and it was 
97% men. Um, so the industry is still very dominated by men. And it was about, you know, 98% white. And so it's still very dominated, um, you know, in terms of ethnicity and race by white folks. And it was, it's just been very surprising to me because it's a very new industry. It's very up and coming. Um, there's a lot of movement and change within the craft distilling world. And we live in 2017 where women make up more than 50% of the population and minorities make up, you know, potentially 35 to 40% of our population, uh, maybe more. And so it's just been a surprise to me and it made me realize that there must be barriers and the barriers are access to capital, access to experience in the workplace. There aren't formal training programs mm. widely available for people to get certified. So it's been a mission for me to grow those programs to support people in entering the field. Karen Hoskin is co-owner of Montagna Rum, a distillery in Crested Buttes, with rum sales that have expanded to most states and several other countries. That's the program for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for tuning into Colorado Matters from CPR News.